It's been about two years since voters approved Clean Missouri, which brought about major changes to state legislative redistricting. Flash forward two years and voters are again dealing with the topic with Amendment 3, which would do away with most of Clean Missouri's redistricting changes. Sean Zucker Nicholson is the leader of the campaign to vote down Amendment 3, and he joins me on the latest episode of Politically Speaking to make his case to voters. Let's hit the music. This is the Politically Speaking podcast, the definitive show about Missouri politics. It's a little complicated in Bolivar because there is a Parsons family there. But we also knew that it was important to make sure that that we got to where we needed to go. You know if you walk in a room and you're getting ready to make a decision and everybody in the room looks like you, you need to stop. And right now what happens in the United States Senate is as critical as anywhere else in the country. I really want the state to succeed. We want everybody to uh, know that we're all working together. I just worked hard to try to build my name where I didn't have the money. And welcome to Politically Speaking. I'm your host, St. Louis Public Radio political correspondent Jason Rosenbaum. Joining me as our special guest today, the leader of the campaign to defeat Amendment 3 in Missouri. Sean Sonker Nicholson. Thanks for having me, Jason. Thank you for being here. For our listeners, we have uh, Blake Hurst of the Missouri Farm Bureau with the Yes Side in a separate podcast, so you get both perspectives. Uh, You were on the show in 2018. This is a little bit of deja vu. We are discussing uh, clean Missouri and state legislative redistricting. And just for clarity's sake, as as this podcast goes on, we're going to describe what passed in 2018 as clean Missouri and what is being proposed on November 3rd as Amendment 3. I know that some Opponents of Amendment 3 call it dirty Missouri or smelly Missouri or something, but we're just going to do that for clarity's sake. So give me your core argument about why people should not vote for Amendment 3. Yeah, so in 2018, there was a citizen-led movement, um, a citizen petition to enact nonpartisan redistricting reforms that added transparency, um, fairness, um, independence to our redistricting process. And there were uh, some politicians and some lobbyists in Jeff City who didn't like that. Uh, they were talking about ways to overturn what voters wanted to do even before the polls opened in 2018. And so what they put forward in the form of Amendment 3 is a rather audacious effort to not only undo all the reforms that voters passed, but to create a redistricting system, a gerrymandering system that's unlike anything Missouri's ever seen. It's unlike anything else in the United States in a couple of key respects. And they know that voters aren't going to like what's in the fine print. And so they have attached a $5 gift limit change from lobbyists to distract voters from the the gerrymandering policy. And they've attached a $100 contribution limit change for state Senate candidates. I'm glad you mentioned that because one of the core messages that your side is putting forth is Amendment 3 is inherently deceptive because it's, it's putting marginal changes to lobbyist gifts and contribution limits in front of this massive change to state legislative redistricting. And what Amendment 3 proponents like State Representative Justin Hill, a Republican from uh, St. Saint- Charles County, are saying is, we're just playing the game that Clean Missouri played in, in 2018. This is what Representative Hill had to say. So how do they do it? They put ballot candy on the ballot so that you think you're voting for lobbyist gifts. Because who wouldn't want to ban lobbyist gifts? I would love to ban lobbyists. So the subtext of Representative Hill's message is that 
Clean Missouri was a major change to state legislative redistricting paired with popular ethics reforms and that the ethics reforms were emphasized in, you know, paid advertising and the redistricting part was de-emphasized. How would you respond to that argument? Yeah, so we collected signatures over 18 months, two years, ran a two-year campaign. And the very first bullet on every single petition that we circulated said, this is about redistricting. The very first bullet on every ballot cast in November 2018 made it clear that this was about redistricting. Um, I was in that room with you two plus years ago. I don't remember exactly, but you know, we went through section by section, by line by line. Um, the full policy of what voters approved was vetted and it passed by a nearly two to one margin. Um, that is substantively different. That is very different than what's going on here where uh, we went and talked about all of the parts of the package. We ran that campaign. Here, they're making a $5 gift change and a $100 contribution limit change. Like those are, those are not real reforms. Um, and there's a reason why it's been, um, the vote yes side has been so scarce in trying to define the, the fine print because um, so much of it is, is frankly indefensible. So let's talk about the fine print. I want to go through some of the, the arguments for and against Amendment 3 and some of the arguments against Clean Missouri, which are being used as a reason to pass Amendment 3. One of the biggest changes, in my opinion, is moving compactness up in the priority list over partisan fairness and competitiveness formula. And it also makes major changes to that formula to the point where it's not really that relevant anymore. I would say it's at best neutered, if at worst, just completely thrown out, even though it's still there. And some Amendment 3 opponents would say emphasizing compactness inherently helps Republicans because Democrats are largely condensed in St. Louis and Kansas City. Yeah, so I think I, I think about it a little bit differently. So the question in my mind is whether compactness is the only standard. It's the law right now. Compact districts are already required. I think the question in my mind right now is that, is that the only thing that, that matters? And is that a big loophole that allows the lobbyists, the operatives in the back rooms to draw more of these incumbent protection districts? So I think it's important to look at how the criteria, the rules exist in the overall context of the, of the full piece. Um, but you know, there has been a lot of analysis done of um, what voters approved and what, like, so I'll, I'll lift up um, an analysis done by Professor Wong, Professor Sam Wong at the Princeton Gerrymandering Project. And he talked about, you know, if you look at what voters approved with the rules for fairness, the rules encouraging competition, the rules requiring compact contiguous districts, those are the law right now. If you, if you look at the math and, and you model this out, you'll see that about one-fifth of the districts are competitive. Um, it's not all the districts. It's, it's more than there are right now. And this can all be done without crazy shapes. Um, so the, the question, it, the way that you framed it there, I think with the way that the other side has talked about compactness is a bit of a, a false, false choice. Um, it's really a question of, do we want compact, compact districts in an overall plan that is fair? Um, or is compactness the... The, the loophole that all sorts of funky business gets to happen in. I'm glad you mentioned crazy shapes because one of the core messages against clean Missouri from opponents of it is the argument that it will create crazy looking districts that go across a wide swath of terrain. One of the people that's making that argument is Lowell Pearson. He's an attorney. He's not a fan of clean Missouri because he tried to knock it off the ballot in 2018, but he also has experience working on the redistricting commissions earlier in the 2010s. This is what his prediction of what some of the districts will look like. What you would really see, I mean, if you imagine St. Louis city and county, to me, the only way you could draw those districts 
to be fair and competitive, whatever that means, is you would have long, skinny districts coming out from the, from the arch in St. Louis. Because the, the, uh, the more closely, to the, the populations more closely to the arch are heavily democratic. So if it's going to be fair and competitive, you've got to do something to find a roughly equal number of Republican votes which means you've got to extend that uh, several miles, many miles out from the arch. So I envision long, skinny ribbons, which have very little to do with each other. I think that's the only way you could get to, uh, to fair and competitive district. So it's easy to dismiss Pearson because he's a Republican and he doesn't like clean Missouri. But frankly, what he's described of pairing together heavily Democratic urban areas with more Republican suburban and ex-urban areas has been told to me as a likely outcome from Democrats who were involved in the redistricting process in the 2010s. And I, I reject the idea that we're going to see districts from Chillicothe to Richmond Heights. I, I understand that not every district has to be 50-50, but is it reasonable for voters who voted for Clean Missouri to expect that if it's retained, the districts that Pearson described may actually come to pass? Yeah, so I mean, you're right that Lowell was one of the um, folks who was in the back rooms drawing maps in, the, in 2011. Um, I think the giveaway there that he's not making a good faith argument is he talks about fairness and competitiveness not being well defined. They are actually <laughs> quite specifically defined in, in what voters approved. Um, but you are right that there was a lot of information back in 2018 about um, the, the fine print of, of what voters approved. What he's doing is he's taking one criteria out of several and he's taking it out of order and suggesting falsely that that's the only criteria that matters. And what voters approved, the very first criteria uh, that comes before everything else is you have to protect the voting power of communities of color. That's important because both Democratic and Republican operatives have um, done funny business in the past to, to um, take away the political power of, of communities of color, and that's a bad thing. We'll talk about that later in the show, by the way, but continue. There are two flaws. There's two like bad assumptions in that argument from, from Lowell. One is the suggestion that the statewide fairness rules apply to individual districts. That's just not the case. That is, that's wrong. Um, and it has been intentionally um, wrong from some of the opponents in the past or some of the um, opponents of Clean Missouri in the past. Um, and it also like, takes things out of order. So um, protecting the voting power of community co communities of color comes first. And then after that, um, the fairness rules apply to the overall plan, not to individual districts. Um, and then to go back to the analysis that I mentioned a couple minutes ago from Professor Wong, one fifth of the seats, I'm reading from his analysis right now, one fifth of the seats under the voter approved rules would have to be competitive. The other seats would be safer, either Republican or Democratic, and this can all be done without drawing crazy shapes. So it's, yeah, it, it, what, what Lowell is saying is not based in the text of, of what voters approved, and it's not a, a good faith argument about um, what would come to pass. Let's talk about another argument that Amendment 3 proponents are putting forth, and they are upset that the auditor's office has some involvement in selecting the demographer. And you've pushed back against the idea that the auditor chooses the demographer, and I want you to explain the conflict and why Amendment 3 proponents are wrong before I get to my next question on why the auditor is involved in the first place. Yeah, so I mean, that's a very kind way, a kind summary of what the other side um, has described the, the current process being. Um, but what proved is a multi-step process where um, the auditor's office collects applications, 
um, provides those applicants for all the qualified folks to the Senate. Um, the Senate Majority Leader Caleb Rowden actually was asked about this last week um, as part of his um, reelection campaign in Columbia. And he talked about, we actually picked the demographer, myself and the minority leader, and we started those conversations. So um, there's been a lot of misinformation about how all this works. Um, after, yeah, so I'll just stop there. It sounds like you've got a follow-up question, but I think, yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, there's been a lot of dishonest and bad faith arguments um, made about this particular part of, of the process. I, I agree with you that there is a multi-step process and there is a there is a strong possibility that the minority leader, majority leader in this instance will just choose the demographer because none of the demographer candidates I've seen are overtly controversial. It's not like Jeff Rowe and Roy Temple are nominees, for example. But I think that, you know, opponents of Clean Missouri may be asking, why is the auditor involved in the first place? As you as I'm sure, you know, there were precursors to Clean Missouri that were circulated in 2015 that had the governor's office largely involved in choosing the demographer. As soon as Eric Greitens won the governorship, the petition you all decided to circulate involved the auditor, who happened to be the only Democratic statewide official left. Some would say that you chose the auditor because you wanted a Democratic official in, involved in this process and not a Republican one. Yeah, so like I was there like when the decision was made, and it was made after talking to voters. And voters were very clear that a multi-step process that involved both political parties that reduced the likelihood of gamesmanship um, was was the right way to go. Like this decision was made after talking to voters. Um, and I think uh, one of the, the, the things that often happens in the demographer selection role is that it happens like um, at the exclusion of all the other parts of what a part of the larger package of the criteria that ensure that no matter who draws the map, whoever becomes the demographer, whoever is selected and becomes a part of the commissions that removes, that reviews the the draft maps from the demographer, like the rules that protect voters, that protect communities, apply to that entire process and ensure that everyone gets a fair shake. Well, let's talk about a core argument that your side is making and that Amendment 3 has language in there that would allow counting for these districts to be eligible voters versus total population. I want you to explain like what that actually means and why you think it's a bad thing. Yeah. So Missouri right now is like every other state in the United States. We count everyone when it's time to draw our maps, all 6.1 million of us, give or take, depending on how the census comes out. Missouri has done this since the 1800s, the state constitution of 1875 required you count everyone who's here. Um, and that's a core part of how you get fair maps. What Amendment 3 would do is it would remove the three current requirements in the constitution that say you got to count everyone. It even removes the requirement that maps be based on the decennial census data. So like <laughs> they're trying to take out like that we even use like the census that's happening right now as the population base. And they they use this funny language in there to talk about drafts will, maps will be drawn based on one person, one vote on the basis of one person, one vote. The sponsor of Amendment 3 of what is now Amendment 3 was asked to explain this by Jill Shoup you know, back in January. Um, and the attorney general's office was asked to explain what this means when a judge asked like what's going on with this as they were rewriting the ballot language because they were trying to decide, does this need to appear in the ballot summary? And here's audio from John Sauer from the attorney general's office talking exactly about that. Yeah, Your Honor, my understanding of that is one is based on absolute population, the other is based on the, the number of voters. So one person, one vote, the criteria based on the number of actual eligible voters in the relevant district, as opposed to an absolute population. Yeah, and they're quite clear of what they're trying to do. They have been explicit on the Senate floor 
in front of a judge. They want to draw maps based on the eligible voter population of the state, not the total population. That may not sound like a big deal at first, but it would actually have profound implications on who is represented and who matters and how our communities are represented. So there are one and a half million Missourians right now who are not eligible to vote. Almost all of them are kids who just aren't eligible to vote because they're kids. So my son, for instance, he would not count, my eldest, he would not count in if this happens in the state Senate map, the state house maps, but he would vote in those maps because he's gonna come of age, he's gonna become 18 here in a couple of cycles. Beyond the fundamental unfairness of this, it's also discriminatory in its impact because communities of color are relatively younger than their white counterparts. So if this happens, the data shows quite clearly, you know, the, the deal on the table is essentially, we're not gonna count one in five white Missourians, and then we're gonna not count one in four black Missourians, and then we're not gonna count half of the Latino or Asian American populations in the state. Like that is problematic to say the least. Um, that would have a huge, um, that, that is why there has been frankly, like even more bipartisan opposition to amendment three than there was um, support for the Clean Missouri Amendment. And that's why when voters go in to look at the Amendment 3 ballot summary, on the fiscal note, you will see that individual local governments expect significant revenue losses if Amendment 3 passes. And that's because the research backs up common sense that if your community is not fully counted, if your community is underrepresented, you're not fully represented, and you don't get your fair share of representation and resources um, going forward. So it is, this is perhaps the most profound and controversial part. Like there's a lot of nasty stuff in Amendment 3, but like this is where it is a big deal what they're trying to do. Would it be required for the commissions or the panel of appellate judges to use eligible voters or could they still use total population? So it would not be required, but the sponsor, um, the attorney general's office in court have been very clear that that is what they are trying to do. Um, so there would almost certainly be a fight to stop this, like, given the discriminatory impact, um, given just how this would profoundly impact how our communities are represented. So yeah, you are correct. It is not required, but we should take the proponents of Amendment 3 at their word when they say this is what they want to do to Missouri. We'll be right back after this quick break with Sean Sonker Nicholson, the leader of the No on Amendment 3 campaign. And we're back on Politically Speaking with Sean Sonker Nicholson, who is leading the effort to defeat Amendment 3. So let's talk about a, an issue that I think we've had a, a friendly disagreement on. Um, I think the ballot summary that the appellate judges came up is incredibly misleading. And I think that the idea that they wrote that these commissions will have, quote, responsibility for crafting these maps does not take in the reality that it will be very difficult for a commission either House or Senate, to come up with these maps. And here's why I believe that, and then you can respond. You would need seven-tenths of the members to approve a map, which means either four Democrats or four Republicans will have to switch sides. And I think we've established that the parties have very different ideas of what constitutes advantageous redistricting. So I think that that's very unlikely. Um, the other thing that I think is just reality is if you've looked back at history— Appellate judges more or less have drawn these maps for the last three redistricting cycles. I know that in 2011, there was a commission that drew map in the Senate, but that was after a map was 
declared unconstitutional and there was a time limit that was put on. And in, in Amendment 3, it specifically says if that happens again, the Supreme Court will draw the map, not a commission. So why am I wrong? Because I believe that these commissions are, are pretty irrelevant to the process, but it seems that both proponents of Amendment 3 and opponents of Amendment 3 see, see them as supremely important. Going back to the, the first point you made there, like I actually agree that the ballot summary as, as finalized is pretty confusing um, and there's a lot going on in there. Um, and I think that's why voters need to be, you know, very wary um, of, of what's in the fine print. Um, I think what I would say is I would point to um, an amicus brief that was filed by Eddie Grime, um, who actually provided the underlying text for what is now Amendment 3 um, to the legislature back in 2019. And he was explicit that because of changes that Amendment 3 is making to those commissions and how they get selected, and because they are increasing the number of political operatives and lobbyists in those back rooms, that it's more likely that we see what has happened with our current state Senate plan, where there's a consensus and conflict protection map that's drawn. Um, I will, like, we should take the proponents at their word when they say, if we get more folks in those back rooms, there's a better likelihood of a deal that, um, you know, the, that incumbents can all, like, is it good for them and there's less competition? Like, they have said what they're trying to do. I agree that that's what they're trying to do, and we should take them at their word. So let's, but let's just say my scenario plays out and that these commissions deadlock. I'm not going to say that they will automatically deadlock because, you know, never say never. But what proponents of Amendment 3 are saying is they're pointing to the 2011 process because I received a memo from the judges, which you have read as well, that the judges didn't use political partisan data when they were drawing maps, that they started with a clean map, not with pre-existing maps. And people like Representative Phil Cristofanelli, a Republican from St. Charles County, believes that the judges did a, a reasonably good job when coming up with the maps. Well, I thought it was uh, remarkable because it was uh, an exemplary way of doing redistricting. All of the horror stories you hear from the advocates of Clean Missouri about how Missouri's maps were gerrymandered, I think are undermined by the fair and nonpartisan approach that the members of the judiciary took in drawing Missouri's maps for the past 20 years. Now, obviously, there are people that disagree with that. Like I talked with Joan Bray, who thought the judges did a miserable job of redistricting. But I think his point goes to what we've talked about before. If the appellate judges end up being responsible for drawing the maps, isn't it less likely that they're going to gerrymander it on purpose worse than the commissions or the legislature? And isn't it less likely they'll use, you know, eligible voters versus total population, considering that these judges are not directly elected. They're chosen by the nonpartisan court plan, and they they probably just want to complete a map and get out of there. They're not really, they're they're their decision making is different from the people on the commissions. Yeah. So I mean, I think the process. You know, when in the past it's gone to to judges, the process has been defined by secrecy and like a lack of clarity on like what were the guiding principles that defined this, um, that defined the outcome. Um, I will point out that one of the maps that judges drew back in 2011 was thrown out because they couldn't even follow the limited rules that existed back then. Um, and so if Amendment 3 passes, regardless of, of how the map gets drawn, like one thing we haven't talked about yet is like, what do you do if you feel like you didn't get a fair shake? Mm -hmm. And so uh, what Amendment 3 would do is it would actually make, it would prohibit judges from being able to throw out an entire plan, even if a second like judge or judicial panel finds that it's unconstitutional. Like there is no 
reason why we should be adding language to our constitution that takes away our rights to have our day in court or that prohibits judges from being able to throw out an entire plan if it, if it breaks the law. Um, it's, it's just, they are trying to rig the map drawing process on the front end. They're trying to rig the rules and what's in the fine print. And then they wanna rig what happens on the back end after the maps get drawn so you can't go fix it if you think that, um, that, that, that the outcome is unfair. It's just, it's a, it's a trifecta of bad. I mentioned before that we were going to talk about minority majority districts and black political power. And I think it's it's very true that there was only one black legislator that voted for Amendment 3, and that's state senator, former state senator, current state representative Maria Chappelle Nadal. Even a lot of black legislators that did not support Clean Missouri did not support Amendment 3. But one of the things that they've told me is that one of the reasons they kind of like Clean Missouri better is because since the commissions are smaller under Clean Missouri, and it's easier to override the demographer under certain circumstances, as I'm sure you're going to explain, there's a better backstop in case the demographer goes crazy and just dilutes a lot of minority-majority districts to the point where there's fewer black legislators. And and I, I think that that would be a good outcome if you like black representation. But on when you think about it conceptually, that may defeat the entire purpose of creating a redistricting system that reduces influence of elected officials. Yeah, so I mean, I, it is one of the more problematic parts of Amendment 3, besides changing who counts, you know, just changing who counts would have a discriminatory impact that would disproportionately impact communities of color. Um, it weakens the legal protections for voters of communities of color. Um, and it creates a more partisan process, like by design, where stuff happens in the back room with weaker standards. And so that is why everyone from Congressman Clay to Congresswoman-elect Cori Bush, to Emmanuel Cleaver, to the NAACP, to Action St. Louis, to the Organization for Black Struggle, all oppose Amendment 3. Um, it's, it's unanimous, like it's, it's um, you know, with the exception of um, the one legislator you, you mentioned, I think um, like there was even some Twitter traffic I saw this weekend where there were several House reps um, who were talking about, you know, I may have had questions about whatever's going on in, in 2018, but what the legislature has put forward in Amendment 3 is not the old system. It is radically different. And I, that's why I'm not just a little bit no, I am like very no on Amendment 3. I think the reason some of those lawmakers opposed Clean Missouri, even if they don't support Amendment 3 now, is there were some supporters of Clean Missouri. I'm not saying you, but I am talking about some Clean Missouri supporters who openly told me that this may lead to fewer black legislators, but it could lead to more Democrats. And if there are more Democrats, Democrats are going to fight more for black communities than if there's a supermajority Republican legislature. And you mentioned Lacey Clay. I actually have been communicating with his father, Bill Clay, who has very strong opinions about redistricting and some that some Democrats may not like. And I'm just going to read a quote. He says, more white Democrats elected does not necessarily mean the passage of more favorable legislation advancing the cause of African-American. People like me have differed on that assumption. Labor leaders, white liberals have their own agenda that sometimes is in opposition to what is in the best interest of blacks. I want you to set the record straight here, because if clean Missouri is retained, I think this is going to be an issue that people are going to be paying attention to. Will clean Missouri lead to fewer black lawmakers? And how does clean Missouri protect black political power? The simple answer is no to your first question. Uh, with what the, the language that the voters approved in 2018, language that was 
reviewed, vetted by civil rights groups across the state, across the country, language that was endorsed by every major civil rights organization uh, because of the strong, like top of the country protections for the voting power of communities of color. Like those are enshrined in our constitution now. Um, there is a reason why the proponents of Amendment 3 are trying to weaken those, um, those protections. Um, and there's a reason why all of those organizations, plus all of the leaders who you know who you mentioned before, are saying like Amendment Three is not a return to the old system. It is something brand new and terrible in brand new ways. Um, so I think I think certainly we have like I'm happy to talk about what Clean Missouri did and will do all day long. But I, the choice before us is about Amendment Three, which is you know unprecedented both in Missouri and in the country. It looks like a deja vu of 2018 where. The proponents of Clean Missouri are running a very well-organized, very well-funded campaign, and the other side is just not doing much of any paid media and are kind of hoping, like, the ballot summary is bad enough for for voters to vote for it. Uh, One of the things I've noticed, and I do want you to address this because I'm sure that this may be an attraction for criticism, is your group has received pretty large donations from politically active nonprofits that do not have to disclose their donors. Now, it should be noted that that happened in 2018, but a lot of those groups were connected to rich people that you could identify, like John Arnold, for example. That's not the case this time around. Like you took a million dollars from a group called the North Fund. We have no idea where that money's coming from. This has been a big issue in democratic politics because people have pushed back against undisclosed political donations. I want you to kind of explain your thinking of unaccepting this type of money. Yeah, so we've been working for literally years now to build a big coalition for a redistricting system that's fair, um, that is fair to voters, that um, makes sure that voters have a functional choice in um, and who represents them. And you are right that we have built a big coalition and we've raised money because campaigns are expensive. Um, so the campaign has received support from a lot of organizations, uh, a lot of organizations. Um, our largest donor is actually the, the Missouri NEA Teachers Union. Um, they have been um, the biggest supporter, but you know, we have also received report, support from the North Fund and an organization that, that shares our commitment to the values of um, you know, fair redistricting that, that puts voters first. Your group has also received money from a group headed up by Eric Holder that is trying to essentially advance more. I, I'm just going to describe it. You may describe it distri- differently. It's basically trying to put Democrats at a better position for redistricting. And I think that kind of plays in with this narrative from the other side that Clean Missouri wasn't a bipartisan coalition. This is basically a Democratic effort to help the redistricting process for Democrats. Yeah, so I'm not sure when this conversation is going to go live, but on um, the 19th, I'm doing a forum with Senator Jack Danforth on Amendment 3 and both why what voters passed was so great in terms of like moving for a more non- nonpartisan process and why Amendment 3 is so bad. Um, we launched with Republican and Democratic support um, way back in um, you know 2017 when we started our signature gathering drive. And there's been a bigger Republican coalition saying no on 3 than there ever was. Um, I don't know if you saw, but um, there was an amicus brief filed during the, the ballot summary challenge um, at the, before the Western District Court of Appeals that included um, Representative Jay Barnes, along with Joan Bray, who you mentioned, along with Bob Johnson and Marvin Singleton and Jack Danforth and Claire McCaskill. So for sure, it is there is a bipartisan coalition saying, hey, fairness, 
good maps. Like those are not like partisan issues. Um, and so, yeah, I'll, our, <laughs> our coalition speaks for itself in terms of its breadth and its depth. What do you think is at stake on November 3rd? What's at stake is whether or not we're going to have a legislature that is responsive to the people. The ultimate goal of Amendment 3 is to let operatives, lobbyists, campaign consultants go draw maps in back rooms that protect their friends. What they want are districts where we know who's going to win when filing closes because it was designed to benefit one political party or one coalition or another political party. They want a world where once you get elected, you get to serve out your full term, your, your limited term without any sort of worrying about anything other than um, the donors who got them there or you know a small partisan base. And so that's what's fundamentally at stake is do we want a democracy that works for us? Um, do we want a democracy that works for politicians? Do we want a democracy where everybody matters and everybody counts? Um, there are like 2020 has been a year where like we are having that conversation, not just in an abstract sense, but on the streets of like, who matters and do we all matter? And the proponents of Amendment 3 are saying some folks matter more than others. And they want to draw maps based on not the full population. And that is wrong on its face. It would have been wrong um, a long time ago. It is, it's wrong now. So I just, yeah, it is about, as to, to paraphrase Jack Danforth, like the health of our democracy is at stake uh, with Amendment 3. Well, thank you, Sean, so much for going in depth on Amendment 3 and the amendment that passed in 2018 for all of our stories, stlpublicradio.org. Follow me on Twitter at Jay Rosenbaum. How could people either, I mean, we all want to see your funny tweets on things, but how could people find out more about the No on Amendment 3 campaign? Yeah, so check us out at knowon3missouri.org. That's the quickest way to get the facts on Amendment 3. Um, and then you can learn more about the big coalition that has been working for nonpartisan redistricting reform at cleanmissouri.org and on all the socials at Clean Missouri. Thank you very much. And until next time, so long. <laughs>